This podcast is brought to you by Brooklyn Community Bail Fund, a nonprofit organization that works to dismantle incarceration, detention, surveillance, and criminalization in all its form. Learn more about us and how to support our work at brooklynbailfund.org or by following us on Twitter at BK Bail Fund. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Dismantling Injustice, brought to you by Brooklyn Community Bail Fund. I'm Carl, and I am here with my co-pilot, Saleh Israel, and it's the two of us today. And, uh, you know, we're coming up on a year since the George Floyd protests. This time last year, all of the attention was on black-led initiatives, black-led organizations. The idea of defunding the police was gaining traction, and everyone from corporations to private foundations to wealthy individuals to not-so-wealthy individuals were trying to figure out what they could do to support black communities. We at Brooklyn Community Bail Fund were in the same place. We were thinking about how we could renew our commitment to black communities. Um, and in doing so, while in thinking of that, we launched a really innovative, exciting project, which Sally led. And today, we're going to reflect on that project, um, reflect on how it went and what changed, what's changed since last year, um, and what we would have done differently. Um, so, Sally, um, first, can you talk about the project, um, you know, the, the regrant project that we did last year, um, what it was like la last year um, leading the project, and how you feel about it now, a year later? Yeah, so uh, just some context for people that may not know. In the wake of George Floyd's murder, uh, BCBF, the Brooklyn Community Bell Fund, got an influx of donations, uh, approximately $4.6 million. And immediately the question that the fund had to ask itself was, what was this money going to be used for? And just to be clear, at that time, BCBF had already said, because of the way the bail reform had went, that we, would, you know, we, we backed away from paying bail. And we were primarily focused on paying immigration bonds because we were still committed to freeing people. But we realized that the way that the new reform had went, to pay bail would have been just like playing into the system's hand and, and would have been complicit in the fact that we need to end cash bail. Uh, but some people, in the beginning, for like maybe like the first couple of days following George Floyd's murder, a lot of people sent us money with the, with the purpose of like they wanted people to be bailed out, protest bail. And we immediately let it be known that we don't pay bail anymore. And we redirected people to places that did and people still gave money saying listen even though you pay bail we still think that you know we we respect you and we support the work you've done and we're sure you're going to get this money where it needs to go and, and and that driving question of where's the best place to put this money so it has the most impact was something that drove bcbf its board its executive team and its staff to think deeply about you know where did bcbf exist in this space in that moment uh and what what was eventually decided upon was that we would take a large part of that money and, one, we distributed to organizations that did do protest bail. And we, so what we did was we took 2.3 million of that, 2.3 million, and we gave it to organizations that bail people out. And then we decided to take the other 2.3 million and to, we, we wanted to give it to black-led organizations working in New York City and New York State uh, that were doing work around uh, several things, work around, you know, working particularly towards black liberation, <clears throat> and then the agenda of, you know, stopping police violence and then systemic racism, uh, anything around black and people of color of immigration 
and also LGBTQ plus issues around policing. We know that they get the brunt of, for lots of different reasons, and particularly in New York City, they get the brunt of a lot of police brutality that goes unseen and unknown. So he wanted to basically empower through sacrifice some of the privilege we had of money to some of these organizations that needed money to advance their missions. We wanted to find a way to, to basically grant this money to them, and we called it a regrant project. Awesome. And, well, I guess first, what made this project different than other philanthropic endeavors, especially other, you know, like a lot of people were trying to give away money um, this time last year. What made this different? Yeah, well, I mean, I think first, uh, what we just, first was the question of how do we give this money away, right? That was a big question. How do we do this? And I think we acknowledge that as much as we, we prided ourselves on being a place where, for, the, for our community members that we impact through Bell and Bond, we've always tried to create programs that, that help meet their needs. But that was a very specific thing that we were doing. And we acknowledged that we didn't know how to go about giving this money away. So we formed an advisory committee. And that advisory committee, and it, 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 you know, we've, this, is, this was all posted semi-public. We had an open call where we encouraged people who that we knew that were under the categories of a black-led organization in New York City, New York State, to share with each other and, and get this thing out there. But the advisory committee... Uh, consisted of Andrew Ritchie, uh, Anthony Pierre, T.S. Candy, uh, and uh, Cassandra Frederick, which are, I must say, all powerful women in their own right that are, you know, very influential and very respected in the space of, you know, social justice, social and criminal justice reform. Uh, and, and just, you know, I, I, I was honored to work with them. And what we did was we had like a this advisory committee, and they, they were basically preemptive, preemptive decision makers. And our board said, you know, outside of something outlandish, like something happening that can harm the organization's mission, whoever they had recommended through these people that applied, through these groups, and, and I also want to say, we had this open to organizations and organizers. Because what we understood very on, and Andrea Ritchie, I think, was, was very clear on her own experience with this is, you have organizers who sacrifice everything that are never going to work for organization that give it all up because they care about the mission and they care about the work. And we made sure that they were, this was also open to them. And we had this like very simplistic application form that was really just trying to get at who you are, what's the work you've been doing, how do you see that work advancing, how does money can help you, and you know, how, you know, how did they see their work fitting in with what was going on at the time and with the, the, quest, the quest for the movement for black lives. Uh, so, yeah, I think that th that was one way made it different, that it wasn't like we had this broad idea and we were going to execute it. We understood that this broad idea had to be driven by people who are much more knowledgeable than ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we handed that, you know, that decision-making power over to them. And you know, I was on that committee, and I just want to say that the type of thought that went into you know, thinking through the list that we had, and I just want to say, I guess we'll get to this later, but I want to talk about, pro I just want to get into the process, what makes the process difference first. And so, so that was, the, the, I think, first, the advisory committee made it, different, made it different. And then, two, we were very clear that we wasn't going to make people jump through hoops for this money or make someone hire, spend half the money on a development team to give us a report at the end of the year, right? That our goal was to, like, put this money out there so they can have a direct and immediate impact for people to move through their work. And their work has been social justice and criminal justice reform and change. Uh, so, and what that meant was, there wasn't always a, a brilliant project plan. Sometimes it's a matter of, listen, we got people that are volunteers that 
we can't afford to keep having them as volunteers. We need to be able to get them some resources. For organizers, like, listen, I haven't really paid my rent in two months because I've been doing this. And, you know, I need to be able to take care of myself. Like, you know, there's it, nothing wrong with when you're an organizer having what you need. <laughs> I know we, we kind of glorify the broke activists, right? That we, I mean, you know, we glorify the broke activists. And because of that, we don't consider them as, as people who should qualify for a lot of different funds, yep. right? It's like, no, you, got, you, you have to go out there and get other people to support you first. Somebody has to give somebody some support before they feel comfortable starting their own nonprofit and hiring a staff, right? It's like, no, do all that. Find out on your own and come back to me. And then we'll give you money. And we also don't want to be the first people that fund you also, right? Show me where your last, you know, 400000 came from, and I'll give you five. So I think that approach, first and foremost, is what set us apart. We weren't looking for people to prove to us that, you know, they had a long-standing history of getting money and making it work. Our thing was, until we empower black organizations with the resources they need to get work done, how can they have a track record of, track record of getting work done, right? Yeah. All of that makes sense, um, and that is really different than traditional philanthropy that looks at, like, you know, that wants to know your track record, that wants to know, you know, they, it's very much a, a game of, um, you know, like, how much can you accomplish before we give you money to accomplish, you know, <laughs> um, your mission. Um, I guess my other question is, well, first, um, I guess, how is the, how, like, how is the Regrant Project received? Like, how did organizations feel about it? <clears throat> yeah, I, th I think, of course, the organizations that got money love it. Right? I, I, I just, I just want to be, you know, this, this is a very tough thing. Yeah. And our advisors can make very tough decisions. You know, this open call went out, and at first it looked like it wasn't going to be that many people that applied. You know, 127 organizations and organizers applied, and we gave money to 48 of them. So, you know, this is not, you know, I, I worked in academics before. You know, I, I worked in, as an academic educational advocate, right, an activist before this. Uh, I, I participated in, you know, building the Bar Micro College at Brooklyn Public Library. And I, I had a lot to do with admissions, and I did a lot of a groundwork of getting people to come in and apply. And, you know, I know what it's like to have someone apply for something and not get it. Yeah. And you know, the first question is, you know, what did I do wrong? Or why me and why, why, why them and not me? And those are natural responses. And, you know, so from, from that perspective... I'm not so much concerned about how anyone outside of applicants received it, right? Everyone that applied was excited about applying. They were people who thought that they met all the criteria for applying. And, you know, we kind of had this center. We had this center. And this center was based on the definition that we published about who qualified as a black-led organization, right? And what their areas of work had to be to get them, you know, the, as close as possible to who we thought this I'll, the people who gave us the money would feel comfortable saying this what that money went to. And, you know, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to share this because I'm, I'm going to share what that definition is. And it's not, it's, not, it's not easy to come across, it's not easy to, you know, to define something like this, right? It's a working definition. And it's not to say that it is, it is a, a definitive thing where this is the definition. This is the definition that we had to come, that we had to come up with to, like, be the, the litmus test of whether or not someone was closer to this or further away. And, of course depending upon how many people applied would determine how much away we can get from this and how close we had to be to this, right? And again, I, you know, for me, the, the most Im important part was I cared enough about this project to put my all into it because I wanted to get these resources to people who needed it. And unfortunately, you know, you say $2.3 million, 
it's still not enough, right? It's, it's, it's not enough. So it, for the purposes of the initiative, uh, the way the advisory committee and us agreed upon the definition, we define a black organization and organization as those with majority black leadership, where black staff and, and, and constituents have substantive decision-making power and set the goals and agenda for the organization, and also who are working towards black liberation and the goals of the current uprising to end systemic racism and criminalization, police violence in the carceral state, defund police, build community safety, and defend black lives, including black trans and black immigrant lives, right? Now, th- when you look at it, that, 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 that is why around several key issues. And someone could say, you listen, I have people say, well, well you know, we create an opportunity for black people who are marginalized to have an avenue to, to, to do art. Yeah. And it's like, yo, listen, that is an amazing thing. And I wish we can get funding for that. And if we didn't have 20 other policing organizations that are really hitting hard on defunding the police and, and mass incarceration or, you know, police brutality, then you pro- we would love to give it to you. But there's no way based on the criteria that we put out there. You know, so then it's funny because then we feel obligated. Well, can we create opportunities for people that we didn't fund? And I went through this whole process of like reaching out, trying to. And I, we're not done with this process. Now people think it works quickly, but it doesn't. We're still doing that project. Is turning something else. It's turning to our commitment and our understanding that we will never ever meet our mission if the missions that align from black organizations don't meet their missions. Yep. Right. Us as an organization, we figured it out in our theory of change. Like, our theory of change to move it forward cannot happen if, you know, we don't have these allies and we don't enable and empower these allies to get their work done. So we're still trying to figure out how to engage, uh, one, our grantees and people that we didn't give money to, right? Because the ecosystem is large and huge, and we do all need each other. Uh, So so we were received well, right? And, um, you know, and saying no is difficult. So there are two different receptions. There's the reception of we got this open call, the reception of these are our decisions about the people who applied. And I never want to minimize people's real experiences of that. There may be some people who had a horrible experience on a no. We're not prepared to take no, right? We're not prepared to say you didn't make it. We don't have these conversations with each other about what it means. Say We, we play in a zero-sum game a lot of times, and it's not a zero-sum game, which means if you got 100 and I got zero, your 100 must be because of something that I was supposed to get that I didn't get, right? Yeah. And that's not true. No, it's not. But but I, you know, unfortunately, this is where public education comes in at. That's why I'm so happy to talk about this. Right, there are things that that hurt as 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 a person that was running it, as a person that was an applicant. Right, that there are moments that hurt. It hurts to tell someone having someone call asking me what what was wrong with me. Uh, And this goes for anything, even job. You know, our, our potential employees don't feel obligated to tell us why we weren't hired. But you know, you walk away feeling like. Damn, what did I do wrong? Why didn't they hire me? Like it must be something wrong with me because they hired another person, and it is that's not necessarily always. It is almost never the case. There's a flaw thing. It's usually a fit thing. So, so I guess, is there anything looking back that you would have done differently? Oh uh, man, I think I think yeah. I mean, you know, I I bet, and this goes back to I mentioned, you know. When I was pounding the pavement, going to all these organizations, telling people, yo, come apply for the bar at Michael College at, you know, Brooklyn Public Library. You know, every time you, every time you tell someone to apply for something, you know, h- how excited you are about them applying can give a sense of confidence. Oh, this is a, this is a done deal. Uh, and, and I'm not sh- and again, that was purely driven from I want as many people as, as possible to have access to this thing 
But there's a downside to that, which is, you know, the more people you have applied, the more people you're going to have to say no to. And I, I don't know what we do with that. I don't know what we do with that. Uh, th- that is something that in any type of process that, that involves people applying that you're going to have to have to find a way to deal with after the fact, right? So it's almost like we have to have declined application aftercare, right? And, and I don't know what that means, but I'm saying I, I, I'm so committed to work. I'm so committed to having good relationships with people and organizations in this space, whether we gave them money or not, that, you know, that's something that I was concerned about. So I don't know, I don't know what that, maybe it's not something we do different. Maybe it's something I just think more about yeah. and preparing people when I, when I ask them. Because I got on the phone with a lot of people. I emailed a lot of people encouraging them to apply. And not all of them people got it, right? And then our advisory committee did the same thing. Right, we have we have listen. The people that are on our advisory committee are deeply connected to what's happening on the ground with grassroots organizations, and they reached out to their networks and said apply. Uh, but the one thing I will say I'm proud of is that you know we 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 were cognizant of what we laid out in this definition and what people see as moving this needle forward when it comes to you know social and criminal justice change is that there are a lot of different pockets that need to be addressed. Policing is one of them. LGBTQ is definitely one of them. I know people don't make that connection, but it's there in ways that we just don't understand. And if you don't understand it, we have a series that we put out there. It was called, you know, the Pride Month Collection, Conversations During Pride Month with organizers and activists. Go listen to it because it's things that you don't think about that are affected by, that community is affected by, particularly in ways that no one cares about that makes them more vulnerable. So it was important to have them there, formerly incarcerated people, right? Organizations that are run and, 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 and heavily influenced and directed by formerly incarcerated people. People are directly impacted by the criminal justice system. Yeah. Uh, you know, families at the front line, people who lost people at the hands of the police. So, you know, and, and even more than all of that, I'm proud to say we gave money to organizations that are upstate, right? A lot of times we think about social change and we think it only happens in New York City when we talk about New York State. There's Rochester, there's Albany, there, there's, 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 uh, there's Beacon, there's Buffalo. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people didn't apply. We, we were trying to get everybody we could. A lot of people didn't apply. But we're happy that we got funding out of the city because they oftentimes get left out. And they're dealing with it as much as we deal with these issues and even sometimes more because their entire infrastructure is against them, particularly people of color, right? There's no one they could turn to in the mayor's offices and, you know, in, 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 in the city councils that can say, oh, I got to end. Let me just try to get, find out what's happening here, yeah. right? So I, I think that... I was, we were very, pr- I'm proud, and I hope that we're proud of that, and AC was proud of that. Um, and I guess my last question is, how do you feel about it now? Like, as you said, the project is still going on. Um, you just released this amazing podcast series for Pride, and I know some of the interviewees there were um, the folks that, you know, like, that are part of the Regrant Project. Um, yeah, how do you feel about, how do you feel about it now? Yeah, I mean, so... I'm going to preface this by saying who BCBF was a year ago is not who BCBF is now for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, the the one thing, a lot of that has to do with, you know, our staff is much more diverse now. Our leadership is much more diverse now. And, you know, I'm still trying to figure out how to think about it now. So just to be clear, there was a lot of anxiety around doing this a year ago, right? And that was about, you know, BCBF wasn't a black-led organization, BCBF was deeply committed to, you know, having an impact and, and supporting black-led social change. And it was done from, like, a safe distance in a way where we weren't encroaching upon agency and autonomy, which often happens when somebody gives you money, right? Yeah. 
right? You know, I'm going to give you this money. What are you going to do with it? You better use it for this. You know, think, yeah. you know, these organizations that do stuff on the ground and things shift all the time, right? It, they're not, we made sure they weren't worried about funds being restricted. These were all general ops grants. It's very easy to fulfill our, our reporting of requirements. Just tell us what you, how, how the money helped you, no matter how that was. If it was buying, buying supplies, so be it. If it was paying people that were going to get staff, so be it. If it was really like starting a new program, so be it. Uh, but I think now, today, again, BCBF is, has a lot of changes that have happened. You know, for all intents and purposes, if, if our budget was a little smaller, we could probably apply for this grant right now and we would qualify as, as all of the things that we define as a black-led organization. So, 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 you know, that shift, right, how, how we are now positioned in the question of supporting black-led social change yep. is not just from a distance, it's in the middle of it as a black-led organization. And, you know, we're going to talk about a lot about this, you know, in the future, the fact that, you know, the leadership at BCBF has changed, it has shifted. And like I said, we could have, if, if this funding was here a year ago and we, and we were, and our budget was very tight and we were trying to do something, it was like, well, wh where do we qualify to ask for money for? I'm proud to say that we would qualify to ask for money from this grant. And that wasn't the case last year. And we, fr quite frankly, we didn't feel comfortable talking about this last year. It, it, you know, and, I, and I made clear to our advisory committee and our, and our funders, I mean, the, the people that we granted money to was like, you know, we're not going to say who we gave money to unless they want us to. Yeah. Because I didn't want to be the non-black-led organization that, you know, gives and helps the black community and says, look what we did. Like all of these corporations are doing right now. There's all these commercials out. There's all this thing about, I ain't seen no impact in none of this in the places where I'm at. I haven't seen any impact on the grassroots level, but there's money floating around everywhere. Yep. And, you know, my thing is, if the, if, if the, if the grantees want to say we gave them money, so be it. If they feel like we've had an impact on them the way we supported them, that's what's important to me more than us saying, let us get more money because we did this thing for them, right? Yep. And, you, and, and, and it's very easy to fall into that trap. And I understand I talk today from a positionality of not worrying about how, you know, we're using what we gave, but saying, hey, we've been on this journey of becoming a more organization that's, that's more driven by people who are directly impacted, people of color. Yep. And we're here. And guess what? The regrant project has, has helped shape how we're going to exist as a, you know, quite frankly, a black organization moving forward. And again, I just said a lot. And we're going to be unpacking some of the stuff that I said over the next coming months. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that, that's how I think about that. I, I'm reimagining it from a position of not just expertise about what we did, but about who we are now and how we, we think what we've done and how we fit into it moving forward and what we bring to the table in terms of when we sit down with funders and, and what we can provide in terms of insight about how, what it means to support black-led social change. Yeah, you gave a, a lot of previews in there, in that response. But, um, you know, the Regrant Project, I think it was probably one of the more, you know, for me, it was just one of the more bold things that we've done, um, not just in the last year, but really throughout our history. A lot of organizations would have said, you know, they got this grant, this, they got this money. They would have, you know, they would have looked on Twitter, seen a couple of complaints about it, and then said, forget this, I'm, we're putting this in the bank. This is gonna keep us going for the next five years. But that's not what BCBF did. BCBF really looked at the intent of the money and um, you know, really lived out its commitment to black communities um, and to black-led organizations. Um, and yeah, and you know, I think, um, you know, you, of course, you know, I definitely admire you and you did an amazing job um, facilitating 
on this program because, and you know, I, I remember you banging your head against the wall because it wasn't easy, um, but change is never easy. Um, and so um, why don't we leave it there? Um, you know, again, Sally gave some previews of changes happening at BCBF. We're going to be talking about those in upcoming episodes. But for now, um, you know, visit us online, brooklynbailfund.org. Um, support us, make a donation, and we will talk to you next week.